So just how dangerous is the Bible? It may not be a subject we often think about, but it's important to consider what happens when we use bad principles for interpreting the Bible. On our program today, we are discussing hermeneutics, a fancy word that simply means Bible study methods. We will learn how to tackle difficult passages with the right framework. Peter described the writings of Paul as hard to be understood. He even warned that some people misinterpret his writings and wrestle with these passages to their own destruction. So just how dangerous is the Bible? Welcome to Advent Next. Uh, Our guest today is uh, Dr. Martin Hanna, um, and I have a co-host today, uh, Maxwell Acca. That's me. That's him. And so I'm really excited to talk about this topic today. Um, Basically, you are also a contributor to um, the book Women in Ordination, and you do a specific uh, chapter that really focuses kind of on, you know, how do we how do we interpret the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, and so before we get into that, I want to ask you, how did you get involved in this book and writing this article? Well, the seminary where I work uh, wanted to produce something that would help the church wrestle with this difficult issue. As you know, uh, Christians are divided as to how we deal with the issue of men and women in ministry. And so we wanted to produce something that would help the church process this And since I'm a professor at the seminary, they thought maybe I'd be able to make a contribution. Uh, Where I brought my own interest to the project is in deciding exactly what I would write on. Hmm. And you mentioned the issue of hermeneutics, Hmm. and that's something I'm fascinated with. I also teach a course on that at the seminary. Right. Hermeneutics is such, a, is such a big word, and yeah. it's like, I want to use it, and then I don't want to use it. That's right. Um, so, so we need to break it down. Yeah, like, <laughs> what, what is that well, for lay terms? The simple definition is Bible study methods. What right. are the methods or the techniques, the approaches you take in order to make sure that you're rightly interpreting God's Word in the Holy Bible? That's right. hermeneutics. I think that it's such an important issue, uh, especially nowadays. I mean, mm-hmm. we live in a generation that really doesn't see a lot of significance in reading the scripture, it's, you know, 2,000 years old, like, and it feels very fundamentalistic. I mean, a lot of the presentations that we get, Mm -hmm. um, even the the issue that we're wrestling with right now, like, should women or not be ordained? Mm -hmm. um, It feels very behind where we are culturally um, to say women can't serve in leadership. And so to be able to understand how to read the Bible, interpret the Bible, I think is is very important in, in the day that we live in. Yeah, and Kendra, one of the reasons we sometimes don't do as well as we should is because we assume that reading the Bible is going to be easy. There are mm. no problems, there are no difficulties. Everybody should be able to understand everything that's in the Bible. But the Apostle Peter said, Paul wrote some things hard to be understood. Mm. And so one of the first things we need to take into consideration in hermeneutics, Bible study methods, is that some parts of the Bible are easy to understand, other parts are not. And once we admit that, then we can take our study quite seriously. I think one of the things that kind of comes up with that, too, is that when you approach these types of issues with people who maybe aren't as rigorous in how they think about their own hermeneutics, Mm. it becomes very easy for people to treat which issues are easy and which ones are difficult very subjectively. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to an issue like this, you've mentioned a number of verses kind of in our time prior to starting this talk that I think a lot of people who don't think consciously about their interpretive framework Mm -hmm. would probably look at some of Paul's statements on the issue of women in leadership and say, oh, well, these are easy passages, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to 
I don't have to put my thinking cap on for this because it's just, it's right there and that's what it says. It says what it says and that's it. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, I think it can be jarring to some people to be forced to pull back Mm -hmm. from just their gut reaction to Mm -hmm. the text and say like, well, why are you reading it that way? Yeah, good point, Max. And as I said before, it's important to note that Paul is mentioned by Peter Mm. as Mm. being difficult to understand. Right. So the Bible itself is telling us that Paul's writings are difficult to understand. Mm. Further, when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, be diligent to study, to mm. show yourselves approved unto God, mm. a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So mm. Paul himself is aware that it takes some care and mm. intentionality and discipline in order to rightly interpret uh, the words of Scripture. Mm. Right, that it's not as easy as, it's not just a plain reading of the word. And mm. I think there's an assumption that if you just read the text plainly, you don't try and critique it, you just kind of go with what it's saying, that that's the most accurate reading of the scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a sense, that's true, but then you have the, the, the problem of identifying what's the plain reading. Mm. We assume that we, the reading we see in the text is the plain reading. Mm. But if someone else sees something different, that's the reading that appears plain to them. Right. So the competing readings appear plain to competing persons in their interpretation. Right. And that's where the problem arises. Yeah, It's so interesting because I, I took one of your classes in the summer. Uh, what is it? Doctrine of, of Salvation, I think it Probably. was? Probably, yes. yes. And uh, this is my first class here at the seminary. And coming from a very lay background, I've never been to any kind of religious schools or anything like that. Um, I felt like the lay impression, or as far as like what everyday people understand of the Bible, um, can be very fundamentalistic. Mm -hmm. And so people who have uh, a different concept of who God is, as far as like, I think God is a little bit more loving than this, or I think God's a little bit more free in his uh, acceptance than this, Mm -hmm. um, really find themselves challenged against uh, more fundamentalistic fundamentalistic interpretations of the Bible. So I was very relieved Mm -hmm. uh, to take your class and and see that you had a lot of balance because you've had experience in this. Tell me some of the experience you've had dealing with more of the fundamentalistic crowd. That word fundamentalistic is another big word. Right, right. hermeneutics. Yeah, I couldn't even pronounce it. Yeah, And and just like plain reading Mm -hmm. and hermeneutics and and fundamentalistic, uh, there might be positive and negative aspects to to the word. Mm. Uh, Nothing is wrong with being committed to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, which is one of the the motivations behind that terminology. Mm. But then fundamentalism can also uh, mean a kind of rigid legalistic literalism in the reading of the text that overlooks that the Bible includes figures of speech, for example. Mm. And, you know, if you're reading a figure of speech in the Bible and you overly literalistically and legalistically interpret it as, as what you call the plain reading, you miss the point that it's a figure of speech. Hmm. And so we want to avoid that kind of negative fundamentalism while at the same time being committed to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the fundamental teachings of the scriptures. And so, yeah, that's important. And yeah, you, you, you raised the question of my experience. Well, I grew up in a conservative Christian uh, con- context. Uh, my father is a pastor. Mm. So I, I have all through my life been committed to the authority of the Word of God. Mm. But I've also been aware of how easy it is to misuse the Word of God, to misunderstand what it's saying. Mm. And, and in, interestingly, Peter says, when you misinterpret the Scriptures, it's not only that you get it wrong, but it can be dangerous. Mm. Mm. You know? uh, people twist the Scriptures, Peter said, mm. to their own destruction. 
That's mm. serious business. Mm. Yeah. And we can destroy ourselves and we can destroy others spiritually. That's so by true. By twisting the scriptures in what we call a legalistically literal way. Mm. Mm. We want the plain re- reading. We want the literal reading. But right. a legalistic literalism is the problem. I think that's so important. Like uh, I've been mm-hmm. working on this documentary with uh, women who are survivors of domestic violence in Christian homes. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at this issue uh, from a Christian perspective. And the, the, the verses uh, <laughs> that that kind of, you know, talk about the submission of women and, and being silent, and the ones that we see using the argument of women ordination were actually the ones that have kept them a very long time in their abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. They felt like this was um, their duty to God to stay mm-hmm. or that it was used, like you said, in a very dangerous way. Yeah. So I think and that's, that's very accurate. And that's a segue into some of the things we're going to discuss today on our recording because... This brings us right back into Paul Hmm. and the question of how do we read what he has to say about men and women? And when he says women should be silent, does the principle in that teaching apply only to women Hmm. or does it apply to men also? Are there times when men ought to be silent? And what would Paul say about that? So Hmm. I'm looking forward to us getting into that issue as a good case study on hermeneutics and how do you interpret? Right, right. No, I think, well, we can just get right into it. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about a little bit about this article that you wrote, and then we can get a little bit into the specifics of, of some things that are inside of it. Yeah, well, the church is debating now in, in our church and on, in other Christian denominations about what's the place of women in ministry. And one of the ways in which that debate shows up is the question of whether or not women should be ordained. Hmm. Well, I should say, first of all, that my article was not intending to try to settle that question. Hmm. In fact, I don't think that the Bible specifically and explicitly addresses that question. But I wanted to study what the Bible said about men and women in church order. Hmm. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let everything be done decently and in order. Hmm. And in that chapter, he talks about the roles of men and the roles of women. So I wanted to study what does Paul say about men and women and church order, and maybe that can help us understand a little bit more whether or not we should decide to ordain women to ministry. But my real intention was to just study what Paul says about men and women in church order. So that's the title of my article, at least the main title, Men and Women in Church Order. And then the subtitle is A Study of Paul's Use of Representative Language. Mm. So I argue that when Paul uh, speaks to women, he is communicating a principle that applies also to men, even if he doesn't mention the men. Mm. And, and that's kind of the thesis of my article. And when he speaks to men, he's also communicating principles that apply to women, even if he doesn't mention the women. Mm. And if that's a correct hermeneutical approach, uh, Bible study method approach to Paul's right. writings, it kind of puts the whole debate about women in ministry in a mm. different light than if you thought when Paul says men, he's only talking about men. And when mm. he says women, it can only be applied to women. So back mm. to the question of being silent. I think there are times when men should speak and times when men should be silent. Mm. Well, the principle applies also to women. Uh, it's interesting because I think some people would hear this and be like, you know, you're, you're putting this into the text. Mm-hmm. You're not giving a very fair and accurate reading. Uh, mm-hmm. What would you say to those people who are like, this is, a, this is not rightly dividing the word? Well, that's, we're going to spend some time talking about that and looking at the text. In 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and also in 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3, to see from the text evidence that Paul actually is communicating uh, messages that apply in principle both to men and women, Mm. even when he uh, mentions only the men or when he mentions only the women. So we'll get into that 
uh, today. Okay. Well, let's. Yeah. Well, where would you like to start? What would be like the the best scripture to really kind of? Well, with regard to the general yeah. introductory issue of men and women in church order, I like to start with First Corinthians chapter seven. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven, and here Paul says, um, "I want you to follow my instructions and and ordain in the church things that I ordain in the church." Hmm. And then he says, "I ordained according to." what God calls and what God ordains. Mm -hmm. So Paul says uh, what God has called and what God has distributed in terms of the gifts of the Spirit, that's what I ordain in -hmm. the church. And I think that's an important principle because we tend to think of ordination only in terms of pastoral ministry maybe or church elders. But but ordination in Paul is a broad concept that applies Mm -hmm. beyond the the top ministers of the church. Everything God calls in the church, if he calls an evangelist, if he calls a pastor, if he calls a teacher... An administrator, Paul says, what God calls, I ordain in the churches. And uh, I think that's the principle we should apply to this. So if God calls a man, we should ordain that man. Hmm. If God doesn't call a woman to a particular ministry, then why would we want to ordain her to that ministry? On the other hand, if God calls her, and there is evidence that God calls a woman to a particular ministry, then... uh, we should ordain according to how God distributes the gifts in the church. I agree. And, and, and Max, you can tell me your thoughts on this too. Like, why do you think that we, uh, as a church, feel like we can, that we're the one who authorizes who's in ministry instead of recognizing somebody's call and, and seeing who God is raising up, mm-hmm. um, that we tend to, you know, we decide, you know, we, we yeah. tend to be the, the authors of that. Like, what, where does that come from? Like, why is that a part of what we do? I think we've inherited a lot of attitudes and ideas from Christian history hmm. like that I think we haven't necessarily been aware of or critiqued enough within ourselves. And I know this is kind of a hmm. talking point that a lot of the professors in the seminary have brought up on this t- issue is that historically, whatever was going on in the New Testament definitely went through a metamorphosis through the Middle Ages. And, you know, do we think, you know, sacramentally about ordination? Mm -hmm. Do we think about it as something that really is, you know, God has conferred this right to the church structure to Mm -hmm. then, you know, thereby confer actual spiritual authority onto people Mm -hmm. in in the place of God's direct intervention? And I think as much as we would herald ourselves as like, you know, A-level Protestants, um, I think we've inherited many ideas that are still very much in line with that way of thinking, uh, Mm -hmm. where it's the church's job to give a person something that they didn't have before, this whatever ordination is. And very specifically in the passage you've mentioned, the, the ordering is quite clear that it's like God has chosen and called and ordained, and ordain doesn't mean call to pastoral ministry. That is like one thing that he can ordain. Mm-hmm. And, if, and maybe if we're talking about hermeneutics, you know, there's thing, there's something we could talk about right there, vocabulary, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can import all of these ideas about what ordination means, mm-hmm. but they're using it fairly broadly here in the sense of like choosing, selecting, um, purposing something. And that's yeah. one of the disciplines of Bible study methods or hermeneutics, to be sensitive to the fact 
that I might be in danger of reading into the text mm -hmm. what I got from church history or what I got from tradition mm -hmm. or what I got from my personal culture. Mm -hmm. uh, but we need to really hear what the text is saying for itself. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I didn't mention the particular passage. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Mm -hmm. okay. And I want to read it word for word for yes. what Paul says. As God has distributed to each one, and as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Right. Mm. And so I ordain in all the churches. Mm. Mm. Now, here's a case study again for this question of men and women in the text, because there's a masculine him mentioned in this text. Right. As God has called someone, so let him walk. Mm. When Paul says him here, using the masculine, is he excluding the women? Mm. Is he saying the women shouldn't walk according to how God called them? Mm. I think not. This right. is what you call a generic masculine. Mm -hmm. And so good hermeneutical principles will say, even though God uses the masculine term, Mm -hmm. to exhort the men to walk according to how God called them. Right. He is not saying women shouldn't walk right. according to how God called them. In fact, it includes both men and women. But mm -hmm. this is what Paul says about ordination. He doesn't specifically talk about ordaining a pastor. Mm -hmm. He speaks generally about ordaining people for the calling that God has placed on their lives. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems like if you would take the principles of even of your own language that you speak uh, into what the Bible is saying, I mean, in Spanish, you know, if we're talking to a group that has both men and women, you, you speak to it in masculine terms. Mm -hmm. I think we do that in, in English, too. Hey, you guys, you know, uh, if, if, it's, if it's a mixed group. And so to apply that to the Bible and say he's probably speaking, you know, using this in a generic masculine mm -hmm. rather than a very specific one. Yeah. And, and if you read the rest of First Corinthians chapter 7, it's fascinating because uh, in the rest of the chapter, Paul spells out the principle giving examples in terms of men and women. Mm. He mentions the men and he mentions the women in mm. unfolding this introductory statement that he makes. And one of the interesting uh, examples of this is verse 4, 1 Corinthians mm. 7, verse 4, where he says, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Mm. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Mm. He goes out of his way to balance the male and the female. And he mm. does this seven or eight times in the whole chapter. Mm. But nobody notices that. No. See, because yeah. they go looking for what he says to the man and what he says to the woman. But in this chapter, he balances his instruction to the men and right. to the women over and over again mm. throughout the chapter. And even Ephesians 5, you know, mm -hmm. the, the very famous, wives submit to your husband. I mean, it starts off saying, submit one to another. And everyone kind of glosses over that uh -huh. verse. And I remember bringing this up to somebody and they've got intensely, you know, irate uh -huh. <laughs> uh, over the fact that it was like men will not submit to women. And it's like, but Paul is encouraging us to submit one another in the spirit of love. So That's right. Yeah. Uh, talking about submission and first Ephesians 5, he also says, husbands love your wives, hmm. uh, which raises the question, should wives love their husbands? You know, if, right. if you get rid of very legalistic mm. literal, you'll say he said husbands should love their wives, mm -hmm. but he never did say wives should love their husbands. But the instruction to the men applies in principle to the women. Mm. The Bible was not just written to men. It was written to all Christians. Right. Mm. And advice given to men does not imply that the advice does not apply to women. Mm. Mm -hmm. So husbands are commanded to love their wives, 
but which husband doesn't want his wife also to love him back? Right. Right. Yeah. Now, I think that's a great point. And I think that that's pretty much the thesis mm. of your article. Exactly. And so what are some of the other examples that we tend to only look at from a very narrow parameter uh, that you're saying we should apply these principles to all genders, not just one? Yeah. Well, after 1 Corinthians 7, mm-hmm. the next key text in 1 Corinthians is chapter 11, another whole chapter where Paul discusses men and women, very relevant to those who want to understand this issue. And what's fascinating with 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that he specifically mentions men and women praying and prophesying, Mm. you see? Mm -hmm. So this helps us understand when in chapter 14 he will say women ought to be silent in the church. What Mm. does that mean if he has already said in chapter 11 men and women should prophesy? Mm. Mm. Now, interestingly, in chapter 11, he's very concerned about how the men and the women are dressed and adorned. Mm. when they prophesy. And he gives specific instruction about how the men should not cover their heads and how the women should cover their heads in a way that was modest in that culture at the time. Mm. When you pray and prophesy, this is how you should adorn yourself. Mm. That was the point Paul was making. Mm. And of course, women who are not willing to follow these Christian principles in praying and prophesying should be silent. Mm. But the principle applies also to men. Any man who would not follow the same instruction should also be silent in the church. So 1 Corinthians 11 is another good place to to go. Mm. And uh, interestingly, 1 Corinthians 11 is also a place where Paul says, uh, God is the head of Christ, and Mm. Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. Mm. And most people just read that verse. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, think they understand what Paul's message is in this Mm. chapter. But if you read the whole of the chapter, he goes on to talk about men and women prophesying. Mm. So whatever headship means, it doesn't mean that a woman can't prophesy Mm. or pray or do ministry in the church. Why do you think Paul used that specific language? Because, I mean, some of the stuff even today, we're still confounded and we're like, why did he say this? Like, Uh why? Um, What was he trying to convey rather than just the first reading of the text? What do you think he's trying to communicate? I think it's quite clear that Paul is talking about an order of redemption. You see, Mm. God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. Mm. And in that sense, the Father is the source of salvation in Christ. And then Christ sends his church into the world to Mm. preach the gospel of salvation to others. So Mm. Christ is the source of the church's authority. But but this has been misunderstood as if Mm. since God has authority to send Christ, then Christ doesn't have any authority. Mm. Or if Christ has authority to send the church, then the church doesn't have authority. Mm. Or if Mm. the husband has authority in his family as head of the family, then the wife has no authority. This is a misunderstanding Mm. of Paul's teaching. What does Jesus say? He says, all power is given Mm. unto me in heaven and in earth. Mm. So even though the Father is a source of Christ's ministry in redemption, yet Christ also receives from the Father all authority and power and hands that on to his church. So uh, husbands in in a culture where men had dominance are being told to model the example of Christ Mm. and share authority with their wives. But we miss that point because right. we just look at the surface of the text. That was a, it was a very yeah. cultural issue where mm. women weren't allowed to work and they're very much dependent upon the male uh, yes. patriarch of the household yes. uh, for their even financial and viable means. And in our modern society where, you know, I mean, at least in America where women and men have equal rights under the mm. law and we're able to work and support ourselves, you know, would Paul's advice, we can only speculate, right? We don't know. Uh, but would his advice look a little bit different in your opinion, do you think? 
Oh, definitely. Paul would speak differently to different contexts. And again, someone might say, well, you're just imposing that right, on the right. text. But no, right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul explicitly tells us that that's his policy. He says, to the Jews, I speak as a Jew. Mm -hmm. uh, to the Greek, I speak as a Greek. To those who are slaves, I sleep, speak as a slave. To the weak, I speak as if I'm weak. To the strong, it's all there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 20 through 23. Uh, he says, to those under the law, I speak as if I'm under the law. And to mm -hmm. those who are without law, I speak as though I'm without law. So Paul explicitly, right in the English translation, in the King James Version, tells us that this is how he communicates in this diverse way to different contexts, changing his language depending on who he's talking to. Hmm. No wonder Peter says people misunderstand Paul right. because hmm. they read him legalistically uh, without realizing that he's adapting his language to particular circumstances. I think there's a really dangerous temptation too for a lot of people to look at something like this and because they want that neutral text, mm -hmm. that, that neutral way of being objective, like new neutrality as a way of being objective, they want to look at this as being like, this isn't a context. Mm -hmm. He's just giving a universal instruction that applies to everyone. Right. Yeah, yeah, this is just yeah. like another extension of the Ten Commandments here in 1 Corinthians 11. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, when we read it like that, we abstract it from history. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, then we don't have to think about context. We don't have to think about it as complex. Mm -hmm. And I think there's even resistance to the, to having to think of the scriptures as being complicated because yeah, it yeah. becomes more daunting. It becomes more intimidating. And, and on this matter of context, mm. let's shift now to 1 Corinthians 14 and get that out of the way in this part of the program. Mm. And uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is interesting because toward the end of the chapter, he says, let your women be silent in the churches mm. because it is forbidden for them to speak. You know, one of the strongest right. texts that Paul makes yeah. that caused people to wonder whether can a woman be a leader in the church if mm -hmm. Paul says women should be silent in the mm. church. But again, context helps us to understand what is the situation that Paul is addressing. And if you read the whole chapter again, it's interesting that before he ever silences the women, he silences men hmm. in the same chapter. Interesting. If you read from the beginning of the chapter, he's dealing with a situation where the church is uh, out of order. Uh, hmm. People are not respecting each other and not giving each other chances to speak. And he says, when you come to church, everyone has a hymn, everyone has a song, everyone has a prophecy. Uh, let everything be done decently and in order. And then he says, when you're speaking in tongues, only two or three people should speak at one time in a particular service, and, and one after the other. You know, three in a service maybe, and one after the other. Mm. And if the first one is speaking and there's no interpreter, he should be silent, mm. Mm. you see? So he's silencing men who speak in tongues inappropriately, mm. in a disorderly way. Mm. Then he moves on to discuss prophets. And remember, he has already said women can be prophets in chapter 11. Mm. But he's discussing prophets here now in chapter 14. And he says, how come everyone wants to prophesy at the same time? He says, if you're prophesying and someone else starts to speak, you should stop and listen to them. Mm. You know, we, some Christians have this idea that when the Spirit comes upon me, I lose control of myself. Mm. Mm. And I just talk while everybody else is talking. That's the evidence that I have the Spirit. Mm. But Paul says, no, wait on each other listen to each other, respect each other, let everything be done decently and in order. So he's already discussing this disorderly situation in the church long before at the end of the chapter he throws in also, and let your women also be quiet in church. This is obviously a, a, a rebuke in a context of a disorderly worship service mm. where not only are the leaders, men and women, not acting orderly, 
but the audience, the congregation is not being orderly. And maybe the women particularly at that church were having a problem with it. So he singles them out and says, be quiet, let everything be done decently and in order. Have your debates with your husband when you get home, not in church. Mm. The text actually says that. But it's not saying women can't speak in church. It's saying mm. they should be orderly, they should be disciplined, they should be spirit-filled when they speak in church. Right. And the point of the text is highlighted in the last verse of the text, verse 40, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 40. And it's repeated a number of times throughout the chapter. Let everything be done decently and in order. So this is instruction being given to a church that's not mm. uh, organized properly and they're not credible mm. in their witness to the world. In fact, Paul said, mm. when someone comes to visit your church, they're not going to be impressed that mm. you're really spirit-filled because things are disorderly here. Wow. So let's organize things a little better. I think that that's, I mean, to remember that the New Testament and most of the epistles are letters to churches. Mm -hmm. You know, like Paul wasn't sitting down writing systematic theology. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was addressing cultural issues in specific geography at a specific location at a specific church. And I think we lose that sometimes because we have a very, you know, uh, mystical understanding of how the Bible came to be, mm -hmm. um, that we don't understand these are letters to specific churches in specific contexts. And I think that's very important to keep in mind and, and, it's very apparent in how we need to start reading and understanding the text. Yeah. So, so to review uh, what we're saying about 1 Corinthians here, three case studies in 1 Corinthians on Paul's references to men and women in church order. Well, four of them really. 1 Corinthians 7, mm -hmm. which introduces the issue where he says, whatever God ordains in the church, that's what I want to ordain. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about men and women in different contexts. We didn't cover all of it, but it's, it's a good place mm. for our listeners to go and check things out. And then 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about men and women prophesying and praying in the church service. So that allows for women to speak in church. Mm. But Paul is concerned that they do so in an orderly way. And the issue of order at that time is the way they were dressed. Mm. And then chapter 14 is where we ended up there where the issue was respecting each other's right to speak, not talking over each other, waiting on each other, not mm -hmm. having a confused worship service. Mm -hmm. and that was the context in chapter 14. So those are, are the passages we need to look at in terms of men and women in church order in 1 Corinthians, mm -hmm. chapter right. 7, chapter 11, chapter 14. Awesome. I think, mm -hmm. well, this is a, you know, the first part of us really getting into understanding quote, hermeneutics, uh, or how to understand and, and interpret the Bible. I think you brought out some really good um, principles of like understanding that Paul's mandate, even if it's using a, a certain gender, doesn't mean that that gender is specific. It could be very gender um, inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're just taking principles from that and applying it across the board. And so we're going to continue this conversation in our next podcast. Um, thanks so much for being a part of this, uh, Dr. Martin Hanna. So there you have it, folks. Be sure to listen to part two of this episode and let us know what you think. Is the Bible gender neutral? Also, be sure to let us know what questions do you have and what topics would you like for us to explore?